On today's episode, we've mixed things up a little bit. I am the person in the interviewee's chair, and Jasmine Walter, one of my colleagues here at Frida, is the one interviewing me. You might be wondering why we decided to turn the tables. This episode marks the end of a chapter. It is my last episode hosting this podcast. I will soon be leaving Frida to pursue other dreams. But we wanted to do something to mark the moment and to, to take some time to, to look back at everything I have learned going on this journey with all of you. Everything I've learned in all of these conversations and beyond about how we build the kind of world we want into existence, how we show up for hope and possibility and each other over and over in the face of a world on fire, a world that's trying to tell us that we are not enough, a world that is trying to make us smaller, to silence us, or to just take the joy out of things. I have learned so much sitting in this chair over the last year. I've learned so much about the kind of person I want to be, the kind of world I want to build, and the ways in which we can do this together. I hope you've enjoyed going on this journey with me as much as I've enjoyed hosting it. Hi, today's episode of Little Revolutions is a bit different. So my name is Jasmine Walter, and today I will be interviewing your host, Masuma Ahuja, who is the head of content here at Frida. Sadly, this episode will mark the end of Little Revolutions as Masuma is actually leaving Frida to pursue her dreams. As well as being the head of content at Frida, Masuma is a journalist, author, and storyteller. And in this lovely chat, we switch roles so that she can tell us how much she's learned through being a host of this podcast, reminiscing on some of the best conversations that she's had. She also talks about her own journey and how she's found solace in her community and also what inspires her work and daily life. Thank you so much, Masuma, for this great chat. I thoroughly enjoyed being the host of Little Revolutions, even if just for one day. Hello, Masuma. So we don't like to define people here at Little Revs. We let them define themselves. So could you please introduce yourself to start off? Oh, it's weird to do this on the other side. Um, I'm a person. The, I did this for another interview we did in Little Revs, and I liked the answer I gave then where I said, I'm a curious person who's trying to make the world a little bit better. Um, yeah, that's who I am. Okay. So how are you trying to make the world better now? Like, what's your sort of strategy? I don't know if I have a strategy. Um, I'm just going to quote lots of guests we've had on the podcast. But I think a lot about a conversation we had recently. I had recently with Alison Turkus, who is um, a sexual assault survivor and someone who campaigns a lot around this and has been the driving force in changing laws in the US. And something they said really stuck with me about how activism can often be seen as a job, but it's just how we live. Right? So it can be in the conversations we have, it can be in where we spend our money. Um, and I'm thinking a lot more at this very moment in my life, both in terms of like long-term how I want to spend my own energy and make the world better, but also in just how I, how I exist in community with other people, how I exist in conversation with the people in my life, where I spend my money, where I spend my time, where I spend my attention as well, which is something that we don't talk about enough, but what we give attention to where our our eyeballs are making enabling people platforms to make money so thinking much more intentionally also about what i consume in terms of the media i consume i definitely think yeah you're right that activism goes way beyond like the jobs we do but just if we think narrowly for one second about jobs so Mm -hmm. what what is it that you do and like what's your journey to getting there and how how does your activism in that realm play out It's funny, I would never call myself an activist, um, and that's my training as a journalist as well, where I I came up in very traditional newsrooms and 
if you took a stance, which we all have opinions, and I think it's silly to assume otherwise um, or imagine a world otherwise, because how could you have people responsible for sharing information who don't care deeply about the world around them and the community that they're a part of? Um, but I was never supposed to to be an activist in any way. Um, and over time, I realized that I had strong opinions about things. I cared deeply about the shape of the world I lived in, and I have incredible privilege in being able to shape some conversations and shape some culture. So I wanted to use that in a meaningful way to inspire people to believe a free and equal world is possible. And do you think that, so Frida, the media agency example, we have the power as individuals doing work like this to actually make like positive change? Like, Is the stuff that we do here, is the work that you do here almost like a political tool? Everything is political. I think to think otherwise is to be incredibly naive. Every single thing is political, right? Mm. The, the way I come to work is political, right? That's me spending money on Transport for London. Yes, I don't really have any other options, but it's also political. The way that the, the decisions I make about where I buy my groceries are political. The decisions I make about what I share on my Instagram story are political. Like everything is political and to think otherwise, as I said, I think it's just naive. So the work we do has incredible power in that we reach millions of people. How could it not have impact? In that sense then, do you think that every action ever done by anyone is necessarily political? Or do you think that it's more because, as you said for you, you know, when you were younger, something clicked, you wanted to make a change in the world. Therefore now the things you do are heading towards that. I think everything is political. I don't think everything has to be motivated by political action, right? There's a difference there. Um, like very often when you when I hear about people talking about my work isn't political, it's work that mostly upholds the status quo, right? And that is political. It's, it's just change making and looking at how power structures exist within our world and whether we want to move them and how we want to move them. So for some people, the work that, like a doctor, for example, the work they do, is saving people's lives or helping people live healthy lives. Um, that's important work. Is it motivated in a like purely political sense? I don't know, you'd have to ask a doctor, but does it impact our society at large? Yes, it does. So if you said earlier that you uh, sort of something changed for you at some point and then you decided that you know you wanted to be involved in your community, like take up space, make that you know positive change. What was the moment for you? Like are there any particular experiences you've had or anything you can draw on where you were like this is a shift for me? It's a good question. I don't know if it's ever one moment. It's been a series of moments of like change happening in terms of the kind of work I was doing, the kind of work I wanted to be doing, the direction the world was going in. Um, the 2016 election in the US was a big moment in my professional career where I started to think about what is the role I want to play. I was at CNN, which is a place which does shape the trajectory of politics in America. Um, a lot of people watch it, a lot of people read the things we published or continue to read those things that they publish now. Um, and I started thinking more intentionally about what is my role in all of this and what do I want my role to be in all of this and what do I think the world around me needs. And you mentioned you sort of drew on the election just then. What are some other things during your career maybe that you would see as like life-defining or like things you've done where you're like, oh, I'm super proud of that. Like that feels like it's been, you know, a big... I don't know. It's for me, it's like a everything feels big in the moment and then you live some more and then there are other things, right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, on the flip side of that then, 
what have been like the biggest challenges that you face, both sort of systemic and personal, in getting where you are today? Um, I feel like I, I'm very lucky in lots of ways where I've had I've had a very like blessed path. Um, lots of people believe in me, given me lots of opportunities. So I am very, very lucky and I've had a lot of privilege in like having certain doors open for me um, or being able to walk into certain rooms or people like just answering the phone or not even answering the phone, replying to an email because they saw where I went to university or where I had an internship or where I'd worked before. Um, I didn't have like any ties in the industry, but I, I, had, I have a lot of privilege. Um, that said, I was also often the only young brown woman immigrant um, in most rooms I was in early on in my career. So it took me a long time to understand that what I had to say mattered. And especially when it sounded so different from what everyone else around me was saying. And for, for a long time, I thought it was only the fact that people around me had more experience. And that's that was the case. And they did have more experience. And also, I was just living the world very differently from a lot of them. Um, like I was, I was in rooms where we were talking about how to cover immigration and no one else was an immigrant. Their parents were or their grandparents were, mm. but no one else had gone through the, the system, right? No one else knew how much money it costs to apply for citizenship. No one else knew how many days they were allowed to be out of country and how that messes with things. People didn't think about like the mechanics because they didn't have to of just um, like how, you, how you make things like really boring, mundane things of like how to make a life work when you're an immigrant. But those were conversations my family was having all the time. So it was something I was very conscious of. But for a long time, I was like, oh, the things I'm thinking about just aren't interesting enough because nobody else is talking about them. And often editors would be like, oh, no, that's not really a story or mm, that's not a very sexy story, is it? And it, it took a while to be like, no, it actually is. And it's really important. And I can tell it in a way which will be interesting, even to you, someone who doesn't have the lived experience or doesn't relate to this person. I think that is something that I can relate to as well. What you just said now, like sometimes if you walk into a room and you are the only woman, young, person of colour, that can immediately make you feel inadequate, especially if, you know, as you said, people around you, they do have more experience, but sometimes it's like the stories you want to tell you're like I know this better like I have yeah. lived this um what was it then that sort of made you overcome I guess overcome is the wrong word made you realize that actually no I do know what I want to talk about I have I mean I still struggle with it, it it's a journey right like you just keep doing the work um I've been surrounded by people who believe in me that makes a big difference when you have people who will listen to you and make space for you um, I've worked with people who are very good at pulling, like, if there's not a seat at the table, they will pull up a chair and give me that chair, um, both early on in my career and then also at Frida, and that's made a big difference of the, the action of it, not just saying, oh yeah, I think what you have to say matters, but you're going to sit at the back of the room and no one's going to call on you, but to actually like, pull up a chair and say, okay, what do you think? Um, those, are, those are two of the big things that have helped, and then it's just like realizing that there's no other alternative, right? It's either silence or speaking. Those are the two options. So which is more uncomfortable? Silence is always more uncomfortable for me. That said, there are moments where it doesn't serve me to, to be the loud voice pushing back in the room. Mm -hmm. And I can be more strategic about, do I need to be silent in this room so I can be strong and loud in another room? Mm -hmm. And being more mindful of that as well. Yeah, I like what you said about 
people being there to sort of pull up the chair for you. I feel like that's something you do too in your career because you you know you sort of mentor other journalists. Thank and you for saying that. As your role is sort of head of content. Um, yeah, what's your main sort of strategy when you're leading others? Like as someone who has a, like a leadership role, not mm-hmm. just now in your head of content, but because yeah. you mentor yeah. you know, journalists and stuff. Like what, like techniques do you use to like encourage others to motivate others who might also feel like inadequate or discouraged by the industry i try to i feel like it's a lot of giving people space acknowledging what they say is valid and then also seeing how you can help them right it's very practical like what do you need help with and how can i help and what you're like i'm thinking about this is a very not direct way of answering this question and is not at all what she did but thinking about my interview with michelle kennedy who's the ceo founder of peanut um on this podcast and i messaged michelle after and i was like thank you so much you just like made me feel seen and she was like everything you're feeling is is like how you're supposed to be feeling right now like Mm -hmm. you're not the only one and it it was just like something clicked in my brain of like oh this this happens to other people right like the things i'm experiencing right now isn't just me i'm not the only one going through it Mm. and so often that helps as well just seeing how other people have navigated those things it makes a big difference would you say that the main issues or things holding people back who may feel more sort of at the early start of their careers is like a there's a problem with like the field in general like the journalistic world are there like do you think there's more scope now for equal opportunity than ever before or do you think it's still like now this is fundamentally broken, like we need to all be making changes. I mean, I think all of the above is true, right? Mm. Um, I, like, I, I don't think that I can answer in broad strokes about the big problems, it's but a <laughs> it's a very big question. Um, but looking at like the state, I'm going to zoom out a little more, looking at the state of our world right now, right? Where um, the work we do, or this kind of work has never been more important. More than 4 billion people this year will be eligible to vote or like to take to the polls, there are I think 70 something, or there are 70 something countries that'll have elections. Um, the UK is likely to have one, the US will have one, India will have one. So you're talking about like more than one and a half billion people in the world already. Um, information is deeply important, right? Understanding the world we live in and what's at stake is deeply important. And the sources of information we have are so fragmented, so unreliable, it's very hard to, to know who we can trust. Um, our bubbles are reinforced constantly by the platforms we're on. So like the, the problem is there and the need is deeply there. Mm-hmm. And also that, that means that like young people need to be doing this work, right? Like we all need to be doing this work in some shape or form. Um, the industry is still broken. It hasn't changed. It, it's changed a lot since I was 21 and getting my first job, but it also hasn't changed that much. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the same systemic barriers exist. I do think it's hopeful that places like Frida have emerged, right? Like that there is a crop of new people trying to change things, make things better. That's heartening. I'm a big believer in like the arc of history bends toward justice, right? Like the world is always getting a little bit better, even if we're in a a bad moment. Um, So things are getting better. There are more opportunities for people with different identities. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right that Oh, obviously, the barriers very much still do exist in so many different places. I think, as you were talking, I was thinking another big barrier in my head is that so many young people particularly are like disillusioned with politics and the state of the world because they just simply don't have access to it yeah. or access to knowledge about it. Yeah. So they won't vote because they don't know what they're voting for or they don't yeah. know 
if I do this, this will mean that things in my life will change, right? Yeah. And then you were saying how, okay, for example, here at Frida, there's a lot of like young, young people who yeah. want to make a change, so we are making changes, but that seems like one big problem that I just can't get my head around it. How do we change that? And when you think about it, like it, in the last, since 2010, there's been a conservative government here, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. So you think about someone who's 20, 22, it's like basically their entire life, right? Their, their entire like formative years. Um, and have there been changes in that time, right? The UK voted for Brexit in that time. They're, like it has, have things been moving in the direction of equality, equity, maybe, but also we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. So it's, I understand why it feels hopeless because I, I feel it too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think a lot about, I'm just going to quote Little Rev's guests right and left here. Uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> I think about what Mandu Reid, the leader of the Women's Equality Party, said to me when I interviewed her. And I think about this all the time about how the sense of despair we feel and the sense of helplessness we feel is actually a tool of oppression, right? It's a way for the people with the power to keep the power. It's a way for things to not change. And the work is in remaining hopeful, right? I don't, I don't know how it happens necessarily. I think we're all trying to solve the problem in different directions, but like the work is in being hopeful. No, you've done a lot of different work in different areas mm-hmm. of the world, different spaces. And one sort of thing that I find personally really interesting is your book <laughs> that uh, elevates the voices of like women, especially young women and girls yeah. around the world. So what was like the main thing that inspired you to do that? The book is a book about the lives of teenage girls around the world. It's called Girlhood. Um, sorry, I'm doing the whole shtick, but it's the only way I know how to do this. Um, it is, it juxtaposes diary entries from 30 girls from 27 different countries alongside research reporting interviews that I did. Um, and it kind of came into being accidentally is the honest answer where I was traveling around South Asia and a little bit the Middle East reporting on women's lives um, and girls' lives. And I was having conversations with editors at different big international news organizations about the stories I was pitching them and that they were running. And very often I would get a round of edits back and it would be like, and then this girl's life was a revolution because she did this thing. Um, And it, it never really was. It was just like she did this thing and, you know, She's like one of 50 people doing this thing and it's like making a small change. It's, it's a little revolution, but it's, it's not like it, there were so many tropes is what I saw basically. And there was an instinct always to reinforce those tropes. It was when you looked at young people from the global South, women from the global South, it was generally like stories of exploitation and sexual violence and gendered violence. Um, and then you looked at the West and it was like stories of influencers. And mm. that was basically the two tropes. Um, and the vast in between of like where real life happens for most people, whether they're on one side or the other, was really unrepresented. And there, even when people have experienced violence or are influencers, like even if people are on either end, they also live lives in between, right? Where they have to figure out what to what 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 to study if they're young, um, what kind of job they can get. Um, they navigate fights with their parents if their parents are around. They have to navigate relationship dynamics with friends, with partners, like all of that stuff was just completely unrepresented. And so we had this, I I was getting a sense from editors and people I was talking to, friends in other countries, people had this idea of life existing only in this very like media washed, not real way, which really reinforced tropes and it felt really icky. So I pitched a series to um, an editor at The Post who I knew about 
telling girl stories through their own words. Um, it was supposed to be a thing I did on the side while I did the real thing, whatever the real thing was at that time. And it was fun. I got to talk to young women in different places and get a peek into their lives. Um, they shared diary entries and it was also really lovely where it used to, the newsletter, it was a, news, a pop-up newsletter, it used to go out every Sunday and we heard from people like parents who would read the newsletter with their daughters on Sunday evenings that like became a ritual. It was really sweet. Um, and then a publisher came to me and said, hey, do you want to turn it into a book? And you don't really say no to something like that when, yeah. When how happens. did you like find the people that you wanted to participate in it? I'm a journalist, so I just reached out into the world, and I knew 30 people was never going to be comprehensive, but I wanted it to be representative of a vast array of voices and experiences. I also didn't want people to feel like they had to perform any identities or um, share anything about themselves that they didn't want to. I was also very conscious of the fact that books don't disappear. Um, they stay in the world, and people can find them, hopefully. So it it's something that will out like that will exist for a lot long time and when you're 13 or 14 the things that you put out into the world um you might not want out there when you're 25 or 35 so i also wanted to be super mindful of that but those were the big like big things i thought a lot about and then i just wanted to find lots of different people and collect different stories so i like what you said about how in between these sort of two extremes on the spectrum there's just life and what happens sort of you know fighting with your parents or doing yeah. the sort of stuff um but then I guess my question is obviously you want to tell these sort of stories and in, in the most authentic way possible but was your goal to just find the sort of universality so things that everyone has in common that's not necessarily the sort of sensationalist stories or because how can we almost escape though the things that have happened to us it's not about escaping things that have happened to us. It's about giving people space to tell their stories as they want to, right? Mm -hmm. And understanding that there is more to every person than the worst thing that has happened to them mm -hmm. or one part of their identity. Um, a, a big part of also how I like to work and how I did it was that the girls had agency, right? So they shared diary entries. I gave them some some basic guidelines but got all kinds of things in return, like ranging from photos of people's journals to there's one girl who like did timestamps and I was like this is really interesting like 7 31 p.m fought with mom and I was like okay you looked at your watch when you fought with her great um but it was it was what life looked like for her and it wasn't about escaping anything it was just about giving her space and I think the other part of it is whoever you are and whatever you've experienced, like the universal themes of what it is to be human remain the same for all of us, right? We all know what it is to love. We all know what it is to lose. We all know what it's to hope for something, to be bored in our lives, to want change, to be scared of change. Like all of those things are the same types of feelings that all of us experience at some point or the other. And we just experience them in different ways based on who we are as people, what we've experienced, how we move through the world, and that's where our identities and the things that have happened to us come into play. I was going to say that's one thing I definitely took away from it, and I think it nods to it in the title, right? It's yeah. like girlhood, this is what brings us together, I guess, but was there anything that almost surprised you about, that seemed to be like a universal thread throughout, that you were like, oh, I didn't expect that to come up so much, or...? Um, Honestly, I haven't gone back and read the book since I had to put it together because it kind of scares me to go back and return to it. Um, so it's 
at the moment, like, or all th- the several drafts I had to go through, it was whatever I was dealing with, I felt like came through to me the most in the pages where I would like stop at the chapters or the sections where it would be like something I was thinking about a lot. Um, like one of the girls, Alejandra, um, from Argentina, she talks about not having a best friend in like the, the way that you see on TV where there's like a group of friends and they have a very like cinematic TV friendship and everyone hangs out with each other all the time. And, and then she went on to describe all these amazing friends she had and all this time she spent with them and how she trusts them so much. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting that there are other people who feel this way, right? Um, there, were, there were quite a few people who had left home um, at a young age where I've moved a lot, n- not at that age having moved away from my family yet, but it was something that I'm always interested in reading other people's experiences of and how they navigate that sense of trying to create home and belonging when you're away from people you know or from an environment you were raised in. And so how do you create a sense of home and belonging when you're away from the environment? It's a good question and I have no idea. I'm still trying to figure it out. It's a work in progress. Um, but people are a big part of it, right? Like people are a big part of everything. Finding community, building community, enabling community is a big part of it. Um, art is a big part of it for me where it helps me feel connected because it again goes back to the universality of being human. So even if I feel incredibly lonely and like a sense of, I don't belong here if I spend some time with some good art. Art can also be some trashy TV in my mind. Um, art culture, it helps feel a sense of being connected. Um, yeah, those are probably the big things. You've mentioned community quite a few times. Is this something that, as you were growing up, it was something you felt quite surrounded by, so you felt it important to continue? Or is it something you've had to sort of carve out for yourself? I think it's both. Um, I So part of part of where I grew up was in South Asia and my I grew up in a family where we always had like someone extended family relative family friend if there was a guest room even if there wasn't like staying with us um my grandparents lived with us a lot when I was very young so it was a sense that there were people around and then we moved we moved both within the country and we moved across the world and I saw how different it was to leave that sense of your neighbors are in your business and mm-hmm. people knock on your door all the time and you know you have cousins showing up um i didn't have like a traditional big fat indian family but it it was still like there were people around and i saw what it felt like to not have that as well and it made me want to be much more intentional about how i build a life to center that and enable that okay. so you mentioned sort of moving around a lot was that did you find that challenging like uprooting and moving or did you actually embraced that and so it was quite exciting I think it, it just was life honestly like it wasn't a good or bad thing it just was my life so I dealt with it right like it wasn't a good thing or a bad thing because the first move when it was when I was like seven years old so I was young enough that it just became part of the rhythm of life yeah and do you think it's been formative in how you move through the world today or the things that you want to like leave as your footprint on the world has your experiences growing up been really influential on that yeah I think so I mean I think yeah of course I growing up between cultures has made me very conscious about I mean journalism for me was a way to translate between cultures initially and I think that's expanded out into just like we all live in within our own microcosm of a culture as well so like translating what our own experiences and I had a lot of experience experience doing that 
in a grand scale of like moving to the first place in the US we moved to. I remember a neighbor asked my mother if India was in Europe because um, like no one even knew where we came from. So it was there was a lot of translation involved where kids would ask me if there were elephants on the streets of Mumbai. I was like, no, I mean, unless you're near the zoo, I guess. Like, I don't know. Um, so there was a lot of translation that was required and I didn't ever hold it against anyone. It's just like we lived in different worlds. We were raised in different worlds. We had different understandings of the world. Um, but yeah, it, it made me very conscious of like how to come together with people and find things in common to build bridges. I think you can definitely see that like sort of motivation and a lot of the work that you do. So I'm just thinking, for example, like with the disposable camera project and the love note project, which maybe you could expand on now. <laughs> the the love stories one, there were both things I did at CNN. Um, I had just moved to New York. I hated it so much, so, so much. It was January. It was cold. I didn't know many people there. I thought it was the stupidest decision in the world to have moved there. Um, and my bosses were like, can you just go out and make something and just be happy for a bit? Um, and you have no money to spend while doing that. And I thought a lot about what would cheer me up and what kinds of things made me happy at that point. And I was like, you know, when you go to a bar and you hear someone telling you a story about, like a love story about how they met someone and there was hope there and there was magic there. I was like, okay, how do I capture that? And I put flyers up around the city with a phone number asking people to leave a message and tell us their love story. And it was really lovely, the stories we got um, from people of all demographics, all ages, um, all different kinds of love stories as well. And it just like a reminder of there's, there's beauty out there, there's hope out there. We find people, we find connection, we find love, even when the world feels really dark and cold and sad. Um, and then the other project um, was more like my book where I thought a lot about the idea of motherhood. I'm not a parent, uh, but the ways in which women are represented often as mothers and um, that I just had no concept of what motherhood looked like. Mm. And it's something that comes up again only when it's like at extremes and not in ordinary life. And I wanted to capture that or I wanted to enable people to capture that. So I sent disposable cameras out to um, women in 20 different countries around the world, ranging from the West Bank all the way to um, a woman in London and had them share their experience of motherhood through their own through their own eyes. Um, we gave them some instructions, but it was pretty pretty broad, pretty vague, and it was really interesting how there were some themes that came up. Right, like family life often has like similar rhythms and rituals. Kids with backpacks, very large backpacks, very small kids everywhere around the world look the same, um, and also like people just want to show you how happy they are and like the joy in their lives, which is also lovely. No, I really like that. I think it kind of almost ties back to what we were saying earlier about how, you know, oppression is in this fear and disillusionment, and yet the one thing we can do to sort of fight back is hope. So, like, hopefulness through people's stories like this and yeah. finding the sort of common thread and universality. When you do sort of projects like this, which are essentially storytelling, right, um, what are the main things you want people to take away from them? To, like to look at each other with with curiosity and to curiosity about our shared humanity and also each other's individual stories right if i can help people think about their neighbor in a different way a little bit or wonder what like the person down the road what their life looks like or have a little more empathy for them then my job is done okay so going on people's stories then um what would you say is one 
sort of life experience of yours. It could be recent, it could be old. That has been really like fundamental to who you are today. I have no idea how to answer that question. <laughs> Everything shapes who we are, right? There's never one thing, at least for me, it's not one thing. It's an accumulation of lots of things. It's every, everything adds up eventually. Like I, I don't believe in regret, which is a very different thing, but like I wouldn't be here if I hadn't lived the last 34 years exactly as I did, right? So everything adds up. So you don't have any regrets at all, Lisa? No. No. <laughs> so that's going to come back to bite me <laughs> saying that on camera, but no, not really. Like I try to be a kind person and that, that's all I can do. Do you ever feel like there's moments in your life where you've like potentially like failed at things? But have oh, been... all, all the time. Okay, so what's maybe one thing that you would consider like, oh, that at the time felt like a failure, but then I've, I've come out stronger from that? I mean, my boss at Frida said this to me very early on, and I think about it all the time. Mm. Um, he said I was, it was my first month, I think, and I like almost burst into tears in a one-to-one, and I was like, I just, I feel like I'm failing. There were lots of things that weren't working as expected. I was like, no, it's not failure, it's growth. And I think about that all the time. It's not failure, it's growth, right? And I failed at work with lots of different types of things. I failed in my life with lots of different types of things. Um, but it's not failing. It's just I had a, a timeline. I expected certain things to work within or I expected them to have a certain endpoint. And they took me in a different direction and that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's like everything is, everything is data in my mind, right? Every experience is data. All failure is data. So it's can you turn the data points into learning, right? Like which I try to do sometimes very aggressively and sometimes just need to feel things out. And I, I'm like, okay, what can I learn from this right now? Um, but yeah, it's, if, if every failing for me is, it's generally a moment to like look at something and say, why didn't this work and what can I do differently? Are there moments though where, because I feel like that's a really good sort of thing in hindsight to feel like, okay, so that was a learning curve or this is my growth. But I think when you're in the moment, it can feel very like overwhelming and hard to have that. I think it's, it is hard to have that in the moment, but it's also like the work for me has been in how do I shorten the time mm. that it takes, right? Like the whole like pain is necessary, suffering is optional kind of thing of like, yes, it's going to be painful, but what can I do to be kind to myself when things are painful, right? Like if a job isn't working the way I expected it to, if living somewhere doesn't look like what I wanted it to, if my community isn't being supportive in the way I had hoped they would be or it doesn't look the way I I expected it to it's my expectation so it's like okay I'm feeling something I'm feeling like shit I'm feeling like I failed I am in pain okay fine that's like a fact of life I take that and I'm like okay I'm in pain I'm not happy one how do I like help myself feel better right now um that's where like the art and connection and all that stuff generally comes in and then the next part of it is what what can I do what can I take from this and sometimes it's I need to step away and not think about it for a while Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's okay there's like a very clear learning here you know I'm feeling really lonely because I haven't texted back seven of my friends who texted me in the last seven months maybe I should respond to people or um I expected myself to have like published three books by now. Maybe I should have more realistic expectations and actually sit down and write something, right? Which like that, that for me is how to deal with failure. Yeah, seems like a very good approach. Um, so we mentioned community already, but you just said again, how does art help you? 
I don't know how it helps me, it just makes me feel better. Um, <laughs> makes me feel connected, right? It's, it's not just like looking at paintings for you, is it? It's, it's more immersive than that. It's everything, right? It's watching a film, it's listening to music, it's reading a book, it's making things. Um, all of it is connection. It's also different ways of seeing the world, um, which helps. It gives you space, gives me space to think differently imagine things it's permission to dream a little bit um all of that helps and it's there's like this wonderful baldwin quote which i'm gonna really butcher right now but the the whole idea being like you're lonely or you think you're the only one who's ever experienced this and then you read a book right Mm -hmm. where there there's no one is going to have like your exact corollary of an experience because we're all the only versions of us who have existed but the the shared universal humanity always exists and is out there and Art is a great way to to find that for me. Nice. So I feel like at the moment um, you're in quite a big sort of transitionary period of your life. You know, some certain doors are closing, others are inevitably mm. going to open. How are you approaching sort of this new like blank canvas? Are you like right opportunities? Not necessarily like what things are you going to yeah. be doing next, but what what are you seeing for like the next so I'll, phase of life? I, I but. I'm going to now quote someone else who I interviewed on this podcast. <laughs> this is basically this podcast is just a summary of all the of other all episodes. my yeah <laughs> the best bits. All the coaching sessions I had with other people. Um, Jen Lewis, who is the CEO and co-founder of Lex, um, said this thing about how I basically asked her this question, and I think I was already at the point where I was thinking about how do I want to. I'm, I'm always thinking how do I want to live my life, um, but she said a thing about how she made decisions always to try and go in the direction of freedom. Mm-hmm. And when she thought about when she was at a juncture, she tried to think about which direction was direction toward freedom, which I really liked. Um, I don't know if I've always used freedom as my like benchmark, but I think there's something about like what feels truest to me and also like will enable me to live the kind of life I want to live, which is also truest to me. Right. So it's what at every juncture, it's like what feels truest to me is generally the, the gauge I go by. And then the other thing I always think about in periods of transition is there's this great Annie Dillard quote, I think about like how we spend our days is how we live our lives. And I sometimes I'm guilty of like thinking very big about like, Oh, I want to have achieved this or I want to have done this. Um, but then I try to go back to like, how do I actually want to spend my days? Um, for example, when I quit my job at CNN and started freelancing, a big thing I really wanted was I just wanted to be outside and talking to people, right? I wanted to report and I wanted sunshine. And those were two core needs of mine at that time. Yeah. Um, and they represented a lot more. But like those when I thought about how do I want to spend my days? And I like made a list when I had quit my job of like the things I hoped every week would have in it. Mm. A lot of those things were, were failings potentially of mine where like I went swimming once in I think two years and I had expected that I would go swim every day. But it was like, how do I want to live my life? I want to spend time outside. I want to be out in the world. I want to talk to people. How do you sort of come to deciding though what feels the most true to you? Because I think one thing I personally would struggle with is if I had this like big expanse in front of me mm. and it's like, right, follow freedom. I would just get choice paralysis. It's very like plath, right, with the fig tree. But I think I'd just be like, oh, I could do this, this, I want to do this and this. How? Start you... small, mm. right? Like it doesn't have to be figuring out your entire life. It could be figuring out what you do tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. It could be figuring out little things about your daily routine that 
might be moving in the direction of whatever is your priority at the time. Like, I don't know if mine is freedom right now, I'm figuring it out, um, but what feels true to me, that's probably it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, but it, it, it can be tiny things and small things add up to bigger things eventually. Do you have like an overarching, more sweeping vision or is it just, as you said, like the day by day little things that keep you going? I generally have like, for me in my professional life, which is a big part of our lives, um, and it generally like shapes a lot of my, the direction of my life. It's questions I'm itching to explore or like that generally shapes the decisions I make for the work I do. So the types of things I want to explore in my work. I generally have big questions that I'm curious about and spend time thinking about those and those then translate into like very real things that might be like the people I talk to right um where opportunity comes through them but it's again like finding one thing or two things or five things that just feel like the things I cannot stop thinking about and the things that I cannot stop talking to people about Mm -hmm. are generally the things that I follow at the moment what a sort of um things you can't get off your mind or what are some little things that you know already that you want to pursue it could even just be like swimming every day Mm. but um so some of the stuff we were talking about earlier is the stuff that's on my mind of like it is an election year Mm. in the world um but it's like you feel the sweep of elections for generations to come potentially and I, having worked in social my entire career and having spent the last two years basically living on TikTok um I think a lot about how these spaces that we're on and these platforms that we're on and the technology that is shaping the, like TikTok is the media and Instagram is the media, right? It's not just the publishers, they are the media. Um, They are supposed to be social, but they don't enable connection in any meaningful way. Mm. And connection and community feel like at the heart of everything to me. So how do we bring that back to our world? So being at this big sort of transitionary period, things must feel quite exciting, quite new. If you sort of cast your mind back to when you were just starting out, you know, fresh-faced, just out of uni, mm. what would you tell yourself then after like everything that you've done now? It all adds up to something. So don't be so anxious. It all adds up to th- something. I think that's probably the... Like, I have, I have had so much anxiety in the past about what direction I'm going in, is it worth it, am I doing things right, am I doing things wrong, will I be quote-unquote successful, whatever the hell that means, Um, is everyone else getting ahead, am I living life wrong, whatever that means, and it just, it all adds up to something, yeah. We've spoken a lot about activism and politics and sort of how you know, in the face of fear, hopefulness is often the thing that shines through. And for you, I think that comes alongside community and feeling like part of something bigger. Um, With that in mind, like, what do you think in this sort of broken world is like one thing that we can all be doing that will be making change? Um, I guess the starting point is, and I'm going to start first by saying I hate this question, even though I've asked every single person (laughs) this question, because one thing feels impossible. And the one thing is going to be different for everyone. But starting small is okay, right? So finding one thing that makes you feel connected. um, And it could be connected to the person sitting next to you. It could mean um, knocking on your neighbor's door and introducing yourself. It could mean deciding that you are going to buy something, one thing from a small local business 
it could mean um, deciding to amplify someone else's voice in a meeting where they're talked over. It could mean um, having, a, having a friend who's really struggling with something that you've been through and reaching out and offering support. It doesn't have to be a grand task. It, it's, it's in just how we show up every day and building the practice of showing up in a way that feels like it aligns with your values in the smallest of moments can, can lead to a life that aligns with your values as well. Great. Is there anything else you want to add or talk about? This was great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for this conversation. And thank you for listening today and over the last year. To learn more about Frida's work, to learn more about me, I guess, check out our show notes. And I hope you keep fighting the good fight and making little revolutions wherever you go.